If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 1. For these Advent season weeks, we've been considering this opening account, these parallel accounts even in Luke's gospel, of the annunciation of the coming of John the Baptist and of Jesus and also of their births. And this morning, we'll be in Luke 1, starting in verse 67. And here, John the Baptist has just been born. He is eight days old. And Zechariah, his father, has been tongue-tied for nine months. And here he is just now, freed of that discipline and filled with the Holy Spirit. He speaks. You young ones, you little Christians, as you listen along, pay attention. Zechariah, as he speaks, is going to bless God. See if you can listen and figure out what is unusual about that. Why is it a little bit strange, a little bit unusual that Zechariah would bless God? Luke 1, starting in verse 67. And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May we pray. Father, we pray again that you would grant to us your grace. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our mute mouths and our deaf ears as you did Zechariah's, that we might hear and understand and even proclaim your gospel for us, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Will you be seated? Well, I was in our front yard on Monday evening when I heard the crash. It was not two cars down at the street corner. I knew what it was when I heard it. It sounded more like a a busboy had overloaded his tray of dirty dishes and trying to carry them back to the kitchen. Some smart aleck stuck out his leg and crash. It came from our living room. I didn't even look up when I heard it. 
I knew what it was. I didn't rush to get there because the damage was already done. So I finished what I was doing, and I turned and I began to move towards our front door. But before I got there, one of our children swung the door open and declared, Our Christmas tree has fallen down. I know, I said. And so I walked into the entry hall and I I turned into the living room to survey the damage and there sprawled out horizontally across the floor was our Christmas tree along with the scattered debris of broken ornaments across the entire living room floor. I'm ashamed to say that I knew it was coming. I had seen the tree beginning to lean a little bit You know, when we bought the tree at Home Depot, we took a close look at it, and it seemed just fine. It seemed to be a really great tree. But then when we set it up and got it into its stand, we began to notice the slight curve in the trunk that just made it ever so little off balance and a little bit unstable. And it occurred to me even then, you know, I really need to tie this thing to the wall, but I didn't do it. And so I began to notice the slight leaning that began to develop. And even that very morning when I watered the tree, I said to myself, I have got to fix this thing this evening. Crash. It was too late. We like to decorate in our house for Christmas. We we enjoy doing it both inside and out. But when a tree falls in our living room, a tree, by the way, that wanted to be chopped down and propped up in my living room just as much as your dog really wants to wear that Santa Claus hat for your Christmas picture. (laughs) It's simply a reminder to me that there is a much simpler, a much greater, a much more significant decor for celebrating the Incarnation than a tree that's going to fall down in my living room. Benedictus. Benedictus. It's the first word that Zacharias speaks after nine months of silence. Actually, Zechariah didn't speak Latin. What he spoke was Greek, and the word that he used was eulogetas. Eulogetas curias atheos. Blessed be the Lord God. Eulogetas, the Greek word from which we get our word eulogy. You know the word. The EU meaning good, and the logi or the logos meaning word, a good word, eulogetas. In Latin, which was so commonly used in the early church, it was benedictus. This is what we just read, one of the four incarnation songs of Luke's gospel narrative, his infancy narrative in these early chapters. One of four incarnation songs that Luke introduces us Two, we have the Magnificat earlier in chapter 1, which we sang together and heard last week. Mary, celebrating with Elizabeth over their miraculous pregnancies, gave us the Magnificat. And then we have Zechariah's Benedictus here. In chapter 2, you have the Gloria from the angels to the shepherds in the field. We sang it moments ago together. Also in chapter 2, you have what's known as the Nunc Dimittis, maybe the lesser known of the four, the words of Simeon, the old man in the temple who meets the baby Jesus and speaks these prophetic words saying that now he can depart, Nunc Dimittis, 
this servant of the Lord in peace, having seen his Messiah. These four incarnational songs of Luke, one theologian calls them the last of the Hebrew Psalms, interestingly, and the first of the Christian hymns. They kind of bridge a gap between Old and New Testament uh, for us in some ways. And whether Mary or Zechariah or the angels or Simeon actually sang these words, we don't really know. Luke doesn't tell us that. But all of them lend themselves to a musical setting. And all of them have been put to liturgical music over the ages. And here we have the Benedictus, a simpler, a greater, a more significant decor for celebrating the Incarnation. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She's been carrying this child for these nine months. She had celebrated with her relative Mary over their unexpected expectancies. And now the time had come. And the neighbors and the relatives gathered together to celebrate, to rejoice with Elizabeth over the birth of this child. And on the eighth day, it was time for the circumcision and As was customary, everyone, the neighbors, the relatives gathered around for this monumental event and they declared to Elizabeth that he ought to be named now and of course, as was customary, he should be named after his father, Zechariah. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. Well, the neighbors must have thought she was a little crazy. After all, she was in her old age and she had just carried a baby for nine months And maybe a mother at that point, at that stage in life, might not be thinking clearly, perhaps, John. What do you mean, Elizabeth? Nobody in your family is named John. You can't call this child John. Hey, let's go check with the dad. So they went to check with the dad, who evidently they hadn't checked with because he couldn't speak, and apparently he couldn't hear either because they go to him and they make signs to Zechariah, Luke tells us. They signed to him to communicate. Apparently, he was deaf as well. And Zechariah motions for his writing tablet, which apparently he had used a lot in the previous months, and he wrote, the boy's name is John. And apparently, now with this public profession of faith in God's word regarding this child, Zechariah's tongue is loosed, and for the first time in nine months, He spoke, and he spoke a blessing of God and of God's work, the Benedictus. And Zechariah's prophetic words, given by, of course, the Holy Spirit to him, fill our Christmas and decorate it with a power and a tenderness that come through the ages to fulfillment in the Incarnation and resonate even now. Zechariah blessed God for his powerful promise. Look again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he says, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. Zechariah has been mute for nine months, and again, apparently deaf as well, for 270 days 
or so, give or take. He has endured this solitude. I mean, can you even imagine the strangeness of the situation, of what it must be like? Some people live that way. But can you imagine how strange it would have been? He's surrounded by people who are incessantly curious about his circumstance and what he must have seen in the temple months ago. And yet he is utterly alone. He cannot speak to them and he cannot hear what they speak to him. He is alone. For these nine months, he was disciplined, it seems, for his unbelief in the powerful promise of God. Gabriel, the angel, you know, had announced to him in the temple that this child would be coming, and Zechariah did not believe it. I want a sign. How do I know, Gabriel, angel, how do I know that what you say is going to be true. And so he was disciplined as a sign. And what Zechariah might have pondered in his heart and mind over the next months in his utter solitude, we don't know. Of course, we can only speculate, but surely he must have gone back to revisit the Old Testament scriptures to try to clue himself in to what might have been a warning sign that this angel should be coming to bring this upon him. And to remind himself of God's redemptive promises and how they've been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. And now this priest turned prophet, filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith, declares what he believes. What? What does he believe? Zechariah believes that the power of God's promise is shown in its symbol. God has visited and redeemed His people, he declares, in order to show the mercy promised to our fathers. God's redemptive promise and its fulfillment is the substance of Christmas. It is the substance of the Advent season. You know that. Whether my Christmas tree stands or falls is really trivial. Whether there is anything underneath our tree or not is merely irrelevant in the scheme of things because the promise and the fulfillment of God's redemption is the content, the substance of Christmas. And God has, Zechariah says, raised up a horn of salvation for us in his, the house of his servant David. The power is shown in the symbol, a horn It's a symbol that we should readily understand. It was common in Old Testament culture to use a horn as a power symbol. It's not the musical instrument, a horn. It's rather the horn of an animal, whether of a goat or a stag, of an ox or a bull. The horn is the symbol of power. It's the locus of an animal's power. It wasn't too uncommon in Zechariah's day for a person to see or come into some contact with a large animal at some point during their day. And so a horn was rather common to them. And they knew what we all know, at least by our logic and, and, and common sense, that the horns are the, the business end, so to speak, of an animal. If you're going to deal with a longhorn steer, a rather docile animal normally you know that one end is more dangerous than the other. 
You're not so concerned about the tail as you are the horns. They are the locus of its power. And likewise, you know, as we say, if you take the bull by the horns, so to speak, it simply means that you've taken control. You've, you've disarmed the power of whatever you're dealing with. And so we have this horn of salvation that God has raised for us. His promise to redeem could be nothing if it were not powerful. Zechariah also believes then that the power of God's promise is shown in its past. This salvation was spoken by the prophets of old, he tells us. For example, Isaiah. We read this moments ago. Some 600 years before Zechariah, Isaiah had spoken of this same thing. He had spoken of this child to be born, this son to be given, who would carry the weight of government upon his shoulders as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And long before that even, as many years before Zechariah, as Zechariah is before us, God's redemptive promise was rooted in the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Verse 73. Zechariah blesses and praises God for His powerful promise, the fulfillment of which is rooted in the past. Zechariah must have felt at least some kinship with Abraham. He brings up the old man in his prophecy, right? He must have felt some kinship with Abraham because both of these characters needed and even longed for a descendant, and neither of them received it until their old age. Zechariah must have felt some kinship with Abraham, but Zechariah had a historical advantage over Abraham. He had the historical advantage of retrospective. He could look back. Abraham couldn't look back on much of anything. He could look forward. That's a little more difficult. Zechariah could look back in the past and see God fulfilling His promises. Fulfilling His promise to make Abraham's family great, which he eventually would do over the course of centuries. Fulfilling His promise to provide a Redeemer for the people in Egypt to lead them out. He sent Moses. Fulfilling His promise to lead them to a land that would be their own. Fulfilling His promise to establish a kingdom in their midst in the form of a man, David, who would merely foreshadow a greater king. All of these things leading to a much greater fulfillment that shows what the promise is after all. Zechariah believed that the power of God's promise is shown not just in a symbol or even in the past, but also in its extent. What is the promise anyway? What is the redemptive promise of God? Verse 72, it is for mercy. The mercy that He promised to our fathers before us which would be shown by saving us from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, that we might serve God without fear in righteousness and holiness all of our days. In Zechariah's day, there were heavy political undertones to saying those things, much more so than you or I would think of. But Jesus, of course, would have much more in mind for those things, so much so, in fact, that it would confuse his disciples throughout his years with them. You recall that from the Gospels. 
they didn't understand the progressive nature of God's redemptive promise. They didn't see so clearly, maybe as we do in retrospect, that God's fulfillment of His, of his redemptive promise is somewhat, we could say in this season, like a, a Christmas amaryllis bulb. Do any of you have one growing in your house? When Abraham took hold of it, it was just a dry bulb filled with potential, but nothing real visible. By the time Zechariah took hold of the same bulb, it was firmly rooted in rich earth, and green shoots were beginning to sprout out of its core. That's what Zechariah held in his hands. And within 30 years on the cross, the flower would begin to break out in bold red colors of salvation. And even now, some 2,000 years later, the same flower is still unfolding in all of its redemptive beauty. Far beyond the political undertones, Jesus had in mind the spiritual undertones to save us from our enemy within our sin, and to save us even from our enemy without, the one who hates us, may we say, Satan himself. I mean, after all, one of the greatest Christmas scriptures of all is in Revelation 12. You should go back and read it sometime this week. It's a beautiful passage. It's one that your children might understand better than you do. Revelation 12 is a summary of all of history from a redemptive perspective. And it's a sign given in heaven so that the Apostle John, the other John, could see all of history in a redemptive summary. And there he sees a woman about to give birth and a fierce red dragon waiting to devour the child that would emerge from her womb. That great dragon being Satan himself and that male child, of course, being Jesus himself. And the rest of the offspring of the woman against whom the dragon makes war are the church. And God protects them all because the extent of His promise is to claim them back and to give them life. Zechariah blessed God for His powerful promise, His promise to redeem and to reclaim at great cost the people that He loves. And the fulfillment of that promise is the very content of all of history But even that's not enough because Zechariah then turns in his little bit of prophecy, his musical prophecy to this child, John, to bless God's work for its tender mercy. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. John's job was was simple in its description at least. It was to prepare the way, to give knowledge of salvation to God's people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of the Lord our God. The Benedictus fills and decorates our Christmas not just with power, but with the tender mercy of a child. Have you ever wondered why a child? Why a child? Why did God feel it necessary to fulfill His redemptive promise in Scripture 
with a child. In fact, he sends one child to prepare the way for another child. That's what we're reading in these parallel accounts here. Why a child? The names are so meaningful here. You have to recognize John. That's that's such a common name among us. One so well known to us in, in Zechariah's day, what the name meant was God is gracious or God is merciful. And the parallel child for which he is preparing, Jesus, Hosea, God saves. So why a child? Because the merciful God is saving the ones that he loves so deeply. That term tenderness, the tender mercy of God, is a term that expresses really deep affection, deep, deep affection. In fact, it's it's almost a grotesque word. It refers to your entrails, your guts. It is, at the very least, an emotional investment that comes from deep within your soul. It's the difference, really, between some of you animal lovers who would show a tender mercy to a squirrel injured in the street. Some of you would do that. Others of you would just run over it, I know. But bear with me. Some of you animal lovers would show a tender mercy to a squirrel injured in the street, right? But how does that compare to the tender mercy that you would show to your own child injured in the same street? I mean, what a profound difference is there. It's a tenderness that comes from out of your gut. The tender mercy of our God, the affectionate mercy of our God, the gut-wrenching mercy of our God for us is such that you may enjoy, relish the embrace, or you may, with a cold and stony heart, reject its offer altogether, but you cannot ignore it. You parents among us, parents, have have you ever snuck into your child's room late at night? Have you ever gone in there when they were sound asleep and placed your hand on their head and whispered a blessing for your child? Have you ever done that? My kids don't know this. The secret's out now if they're listening. But I'm the one in, in our family who will tend sometimes to stay up late working on something, reading something, trying to catch up with something, maybe finishing a sermon even. And after everyone's asleep, I'll go into their room, you know, to you just check on them, make sure they haven't fallen out of bed and rolled underneath. And sometimes I'll go in and I'll place my hand on their head and whisper a blessing over them to the Lord. One of them will not even stir because he sleeps so deeply. I can do that for hours, and he'll never know it. The others I have to be a little more careful with. But I'll sneak in there and and whisper a blessing over their head to the Lord. And it's a moment, I tell you, you've done it, some of you, before as well. It's a moment that will awaken in your gut a tender love for your child. That child may frustrate you to no end the next day, but you would not hesitate to give your life for that child because of the tender mercy that is welling out of your gut as you bless that child. Why a child to fulfill God's redemptive purpose? Need I tell you? He merely wants for you to know how he feels about you. Zechariah has felt this heavy 
and loving even hand of fatherly discipline on his head for nine months. And as soon as his tongue is loosed, he breaks forth in blessing for this tender mercy that he's received. We see it in the child. And we also see it in God's patience. A child accomplishes nothing, pragmatically speaking, right? You know that. A child doesn't accomplish any, anything for you practically in that sense. It would be a couple of decades at least before this child, John, would do anything. Luke even tells us in verse 80 that the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That sentence covers, oh, 20 years? I mean, Luke just fast forwards for his own purposes. He covers about at least 20 years or so. And the reason is because God is in no hurry. God has no rush order on His redemptive purpose. So confident is He that it will be fulfilled in His own time, in His own doing, by His own means. He's in no hurry. He is perfectly patient. On the other hand, our own impatience with each other especially is universal. You know it. I have not read it, I say with you know, maybe a tiny bit of shame, but not much. I've not read The Brothers Karamazov. I understand people say that it's one of the greatest novels ever written. <clears throat> I never read it, so some of you can feel better about your lack of reading. But I do understand that in it, there's a scene in which a woman has an audience with a religious leader, and she says to him this, The more I love humanity in general, the less I love people in particular. I might think passionately of serving mankind, even of dying for it, yet I cannot live with any one person for more than two days. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. Why? Because he's too slow eating his dinner, or he has a cold and he keeps blowing his nose you got to love that. I mean, you got to love that. I love humanity. I just long to serve mankind. I, you know, I would even die for the human race. But don't be slow in eating. Come on. And don't sneeze near me. I just hate the spread of germs. I just have no patience for that. I mean, you've got to love that. We can't even fathom the patience that God has in tender mercy to unfold the redemptive promise that he has made millennia ago. He is in no hurry. He was in no hurry with Abraham, who at the age of 75 was promised an heir and didn't receive that heir until he was 100 years old. And even then, it was only one child, this father of nations, God was in no hurry with Abraham, and he's in no hurry now with John the Baptist and Zechariah. The neighbors and the relatives are amazed at the naming of John. Again, they wanted the customary naming after the father, but what they get is John. God is merciful. And they were amazed at this. And so Luke tells us they laid it up in their hearts, saying even, what then will this child be? They wanted to know, but they would have to wait a couple of decades at least, 
by which point they would have probably forgotten all of this stuff altogether because of their lack of patience. And yet God is patient in His tender mercy. The gospel is good news, you know, even for skeptics because God is more patient than you are skeptical. And if you are skeptical, you have to see that while the tenderness of God's mercy may be evident in a child and in his patience, even that tenderness has a bite to it in its intent. What does God intend by his tender show of mercy? Zechariah tells us it is to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. His intent is to redeem. It is a rescue with a great cost. The great cost of the incarnation. A week and a half ago, if you were here on that Wednesday, for Christmas Vespers, we've been projecting artwork up on screens that that are hanging down on either side of the theater there. And the painting on that Wednesday was by a French artist named Georges-Henri Rouault, It was a painting called Christ in the Suburbs that he painted a hundred years ago. And it was striking as a so-called Christmas painting because it was so dark. It was was not a pleasant scene. It was a dark painting, a, a picture of a filthy and deserted street under a night sky. It was Christ in the Suburbs. Now, not American suburbia with all the lights and flash and commerce, but rather Parisian suburbia of a hundred years ago marked by poverty and depression and despair. And in that dark, filthy street, he painted some children, a few small orphaned children who just don't belong there. They're abandoned there without a place to lay their heads on a cold, dark night in the filth and the danger and the unsettled threat of darkness and the shadow of death itself. And there with them ever so faintly, even because of his own taking on of the filth, is Christ. A tender show of mercy to those groping their way along in the darkness to guide them into the way of peace. The intent of God's tender mercy is to come into the darkness and filth and even death and bring you out of it. Zacharias Benedictus, this this newest of Hebrew psalms, is fitting to end a season of Christmas discipline for this old priest made prophet. Oh, do you not believe the good news, Zechariah? Then lose the distraction of words, both yours and that of others around you, for a long season, and see if you don't recall the glory of God's redemption. It will fill and decorate with a powerful promise and with a tender mercy, and it will bring blessing, benedictus, to all who see it. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and He has redeemed His people. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see and again, tongues to speak as did Zechariah to 
declare Your blessing that we might bless, that we might even praise Your name for the good news of the Incarnation that in the life and death and resurrection of Your child, King, You have come into the darkness to bring us out that we might have life in Your name. And these things we pray in Your name. Amen.